Welcome everyone to the Economy Ninja Podcast. This is your host, Colin Norman. It's been over one month since the last content that I produced on November 2nd, just one day before the 2020 U.S. elections. It was in that last episode that I revealed the most intriguing assets and investments that I've been looking at, and those were precious metals and blockchain technologies. I have spent much of the last few months learning as much as I can about Bitcoin and other blockchain technologies, and I would like to share some highlights of a conversation that I had with a good friend of mine, Dan Illenberger, as we discuss all of the things that we've thought about and learned with regards to Bitcoin and blockchain over the course of this year. And if you have questions or comments about the content that we cover in this episode, you can find the link to the YouTube video and then add your question or comment there, or you can find me at Colin Nordman on Twitter. Otherwise, as always, this is not financial advice, and we are not financial advisors, but I hope you enjoy the content and the information that it provides. There's just so much interest and not enough Bitcoin, and it's just Mm -hmm. absolutely insane. Uh, But every time that I go back and look at what are the weak points of Bitcoin, uh, you know, like what, what is the real value case? What is value? So many, uh, so many large institutional investors aren't able to really get into investing Bitcoin or have held off for so long because there aren't cash flows associated with it. It's hard to analyze as a, as an investment, as a, as an asset, you can't compare it to equities. You can't compare it to real estate where there is some kind of cash flow that's thrown off from it. Uh, and what they don't realize is that it is it is the base layer of money and it's going to try to value itself against all other assets because it'll be the, the fairest uh, form of hard money that kind of exists. Just like gold had tried to fill that spot and it had been that for you know, thousands of years and then... We reached a point in, in 1933 when uh, gold was banned and it, the U.S. government uh, took custody of all the gold and then set its price to $35. And people kind of forgot, in the United States at least, what gold should be valued as because it was set at $35 for almost 40 years until 1971. And then when Richard Nixon uh, took the U.S. dollar uh, or... or uh, ended the direct convertibility of the U.S. dollar for gold, then gold went on a nine-year run of price discovery, violent, you know, price discovery, as people and the market in general tried to remember, revalue what gold was. And it had been hard money for thousands of years, but still, like for 40 years, people forgot. And as it became that asset class, that kind of base layer of money, people had to revalue what it was. And so it went from $35 to almost $700, 20X gold, this you know mm-hmm. commodity money. And I think that is the best comparison that I can think of for what Bitcoin is. Right. So I think that's uh, something to remember when you're talking about these, these macroeconomic things. And something I always try to come back to is that, that first principles thought of 
where does the actual value come from, right? Because you print off all these things that represent value, but ultimately it comes down to either the intrinsic value of a good or somebody's time, right? Time is worth money, things are worth money, but you know, you can't just, just print off value out of nowhere. So like trying to keep track of the system underneath all this stuff is, is really challenging. I think that's one of the biggest critiques of this is uh, people are just inventing money and then it has value because it sits in a database somewhere, right? So like they look at Bitcoin and they're like, oh, you just invented value. Where did that $360 billion in value come from? Did it actually come to the economy in some way? Or is it just this, this invented thing that people are, say that they're willing to pay for? You know, so like, I mean, I don't think I really have that fully panned out. I see how the system adds value, you know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> to me, it's uh, that, that unit of account. So that system where, you know, we want, we want a monetary system. Right now we have one that's broken. It's always been broken. We've never had a perfect monetary system in, you know, in history. And Bitcoin is not perfect either. Uh, but it is a uh, a good system of of scorekeeping, you know, keeping track of who has what, you know, value. Uh, like that's all anybody really wants with a monetary system is like whatever they've worked hard for. That you know the system that's keeping score isn't being changed on them, uh, mm -hmm. and like as long as we have fiat currencies that are sovereign based. So like governments create the currency and they usually create it and try to maintain its stability because that's what is going to function well in an economy. But when you get to a certain point uh, in any country's history, especially when they're using fiat currencies, they might come under such strain where they have to take drastic measures and it's at the expense of all of their citizens because they'll take that, whatever that currency is, and they'll debase it, destroy it, change it in some way that extracts value away from its citizens because they had to, they got to their, their they got to that point. They either went into significant amounts of debt, uh, you know, mass spending. This has happened with nations throughout history where they reach a point Maybe they uh, were an empire that kept on growing and eventually their costs got the better of them and their currency was the thing that collapsed and stole all of that wealth back you know, away from its citizens. So with Bitcoin, like that's why it can, it, it's, its value is in this system. You know, sure, like it was, you know, it started as nothing, no value. And people are like, how does it even have value? It's not creating anything. It's not a business. It's not producing anything that can be consumed, except that it is the perfect system of accounting. More people are, are opting into this system that has more acceptability you know, or more, uh, yeah, more acceptance in itself. So the system, the whole network, Bitcoin's acceptance as an alternative monetary instrument is becoming greater. And that's why fiat denomination of, you know, the fiat price of Bitcoin continues to go up. And there, there are arguments against, you know, Bitcoin, because when people are first introduced to cryptocurrencies and they see Bitcoin, and then they see any number of forks of Bitcoin and, or like, 
you know, copy paste because it's open source software. You see like, yeah. like duplicates of, yeah. of Bitcoin and they're like, mm -hmm. so really, is it that scarce? Because it looks like you can create any number of versions of it. Bitcoin two, Bitcoin cash, Bitcoin, you know, 10 Litecoin, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. like all of them were the same concept code wise as Bitcoin. Uh, and they were created with maybe some minor tweaks, uh, but the real value of Bitcoin comes to that computer network that actually upholds the the upholds Bitcoin. So when you create a new Bitcoin or coin of any kind, you need a network to support it. And those competitors don't have that. Bitcoin is massive, you know, tens of thousands of nodes, millions of of machines that are operating and upholding the network that are completely, you know, that are decentralized. And that's like, that's an impossible moat to overcome when you look at, you know, when people think of economic moats for businesses and like what separates them from their competitors, like it is bigger than any moat that can almost exist uh, uh, in a business world, what Bitcoin offers, even though it's it's just this network of accounting of value because that's all blockchain is it's the ledger it's just it's just a a record keeper that's all it is it's just a perfect version of that that we want when we're trying to think of who's counting the money like we, we don't want our money to just disappear by debasement or have somebody change the rules on us which when it's government controlled that's exactly what can happen and gold was something that can that was able to provide that. That's why everybody had and still has some acceptance of gold because it, you know, there's only one place to get it. Essentially, you know, you have to mine, you have to find it, you have to acquire it in some way from the crust of the earth, or you know, go get a really big asteroid and bring it, <laughs> bring it in. But you know, it's it has a just like Bitcoin has programmable scarcity to it. Gold has, you know, a scarcity that's set by, you know, the it, it's set by the amount that was created from supernovas in the area of the current solar system that we live in that was formed out of stardust. That has a set, you know, quantifiable amount. So that's like there are, there are limits, scarcity limits, and then you know, people derive their value based off of it not being able to be meddled with. Like they know what it is. They can see it. Everybody can agree on it. And nobody else can like change the rules on them. That has value. And that's what Bitcoin is. If, if you think about Bitcoin's ability to yield income, right? We were saying that maybe it doesn't yield. So it's hard to do cash flow analysis. But with yeah. DeFi coming out and you, you can generate five, six percent on your Bitcoin right now. Uh, by loaning it out like that's that is more lucrative than your gold right so yeah it's just uh, the, it's an interesting place to be that was that was another major knocking point against uh against cryptocurrencies and bitcoin in particular was that yeah like it's not even great money because the amount of transactions the transaction speed that can happen in any period of time are actually you know the number of transactions is very low per second and try transaction speed based off of the block time takes a long time so bitcoin kind of sucks as as currency to buy you know small items like coffee and stuff 
but then it's other hard money attributes uh, and it's decentralization make it like super valuable because it can't be tampered with the the scarcity item make it a great store of value and then because of those things that give it kind of value in its network its immutability and its scarcity then it becomes a great collateral asset that you can use to earn yield by uh you know by lending lending and borrowing it's insane the the layers that are being built on top of it that didn't exist there just a few years ago and yeah like when like the rails are being built and they're just starting and uh as you get more money more capital that comes in especially more investment from uh larger and larger investors or larger firms that come into the space you you're also going to get more services that provide some security so you'll get like in insurance for the the custodians of digital assets and stuff like that it might not be a federal like federal deposit insurance corporation level of insurance but you'll get uh, parties that will make make a service make a business off of insuring assets uh, in the digital landscape and that'll continue to allow more and more financial services and products to to expand out from where they're already at so like decentralized finance and all of the lending and borrowing and yield uh, uh, services like it's just going to continue to grow it's a it's incredible where it can go mm -hmm. and we're just at the beginning it's so it's so insane um, and very exciting oh man yeah. yeah it's pretty incredible stuff uh something that you know I, I was uh learning about last night was you're talking about bitcoin being hard money and in the philosophical sense, yes, it is hard money. It's the hardest money that can exist, right? Because it's purely unique. Uh, but, you know, money has a certain aspect that it, the government says that it's money. It's treated like money. It has laws that says that it, it is money, right? Where Bitcoin doesn't quite have that yet. I think gold has that protection. But something that's really going to bring, you know, Bitcoin and cryptos to the forefront of everybody's mind is the laws and the regulations that support uh, the business to occur through Bitcoin, right? If you can get your Bitcoin compensated because there's liens against it, like that is never going to be a go for, uh, you know, certain lending practices, right? So to really get adoption, you need a certain level of regulation, of course. And that's what's really going to make it that hard money that we all want it to be that will allow for its adoption into all the big names. So uh, it, it's something that the, uh, I know I have to do my research on, but certain laws in America really, really make it complicated for big institutions to, to use Bitcoin as a store of value. So, and, and it's still really muddy still. So I guess people look at it and like, oh, everybody says it's like such a big win, right? Like how can it yield 6% and appreciate by 200% in the last two months? And I mean, it all comes down to risk. And a lot of people don't see where the risk is at. They just see, you know, like dollar signs because the market cap so small and the demand for it has the potential to be huge. But, uh, you know, the risk is the laws aren't really panned out yet. The risk is we don't know what regulation is going to bring and we don't know what countries are going to decide to do with it. So 
the risk is it goes to zero, of course, right? When, when a government says, no, that's not allowed anymore, you really destroy its ability to be adopted into hedge funds and big institutions that aren't you know, really out there on the risk curve. And if you did that, you really would collapse the price because I think a little bit of that's already priced into the, you know, what Bitcoin's running at. So I, it's, it's just an interesting spot for the, the system to be at. Something I wanted to ask you about is the micro strategy. You know, it is a business that is putting Bitcoin on the balance sheets, right? So in effect, it is a, a Bitcoin investment. Do you think that if you've seen MicroStrategy stock recently, it's pretty much just jumped up about 100%. Do you think that institutions are buying MicroStrategy as a proxy to get a hold of Bitcoin because they can't put Bitcoin in their coffers? Yeah. Exposure to Bitcoin by buying MicroStrategy. Yeah, that's 100% that's happening uh, in a lot, of, uh, a lot of places. And the same thing can be said for uh, like PayPal and Square because they're offering Bitcoin purchases on their platforms now. And they're going to roll that out more in the first quarter of 2021. Uh, their stock has been jumping as well because they're also ac accumulating a lot of Bitcoin preemptively uh, and with all the purchases that are that are occurring uh, by their user user base that they've already uh, rolled out the application for. So like the amount of purchases is of, of Bitcoin is just going to continue to send it skyrocketing just because it's, it's has limited and known uh, production. It's supplies is set. And we, we know where it supplies set. you know, that's why stock to flow models and like what uh, uh, plan B had, developed is so popular because uh, it just shows as long as demand continues to exist there's nowhere for the price to go but up like it has to go up as it has to uh, separate holders of bitcoin from their bitcoin to be able to be liquid in the market so when when there's when the rewards for mining bitcoin continue to have every four years so since we're only at uh, we're already at only 6.25 Bitcoin per block. So, and that's every 10 minutes. That's all that's created. That's going to continue to decrease every four years. You have to get the remaining supply from holders of Bitcoin. And uh, like the only way you can do that is by raising the price or by creating enough fear and uncertainty that people want to unload their Bitcoin. That's obviously the, the risk to the downside. But for the for that fear that you were talking about of how we had used to look at Bitcoin, where you know it's either going to the moon or it's going to zero, uh, like the risks that are associated with it would send it to zero. But uh, so something that's kind of been floated around by a lot of people recently is that the case for zero is is almost uh, it's almost gone. Like there really might not be a path for Bitcoin to go to zero, and like that's the, if you take all of the worst case scenarios surrounded by bit, uh, surrounding Bitcoin, it still has been so resistant to bad things that have happened to it that it it offers value to people that want to use it as long as the entire system still exists. So like uh, all of all of the worst case scenarios, 
you could get the United States to ban all of the on-ramps and off-ramps and or just custody or ownership by U.S. citizens of Bitcoin. But then that just kind of makes, you know, people who own Bitcoin or want Bitcoin, the Bitcoin just kind of flees and or residents that own it flee to other countries, that kind of thing. Uh, just like gold, uh, when it was banned, there was a lot of gold that just took flight and ownership of that vault. Uh, gold went to the vaults of other countries uh, held for American citizens or the American citizens left. Um, so like, and eventually that all uh, came undone anyways, because you can own gold today. So the governments had to uh, reverse course on it eventually anyways. Uh, there's the worst case of banning that really has to be done like globally, like every country would have to unite in the decision to ban Bitcoin. They would all have to get together and be like, yep, we're not going to allow this. Uh, so now it just kind of whoever has it, that's it. Like you can't get it anymore because they banned all of the on ramps and off ramps, but they can't even stop it uh, because it's uh, it's a decentralized network. So what you would really have to do is go and find every computer that is upholding a node and, and verifying the blockchain, the mining blocks, uh, you would have to go and shut every single one of those down because you, you can't just shut some of them down. You have to, you have to get to all of them because unless you get to all of them and destroy them, there's always going to be some whole record of the entire blockchain because it's maintained in every single node. And, uh, there may be millions of machines that are operating to mine bitcoins currently. So you would you would have to destroy a lot of hardware out there uh, to be able to eliminate the network. And even then, you can like I'm sure somebody's got the entire blockchain up to a certain point or regularly saves it in some kind of uh, you know, non-digital hardware format. So like printing it out, you can print it out if you wanted to. Like you can, uh, as much as we think of you needing the internet and computers to exchange Bitcoin and keep track of it, you can put it all in a physical paper ledger. You could, uh, you could uh, exchange or complete a Bitcoin transaction as long as somebody was willing to val validate it by writing you know, writing the transaction on a piece of paper and giving it to the network to be you know, put into the into the blockchain. So like mm -hmm. you could have a complete analog version of Bitcoin if you really wanted to. So like even if there was like a solar flare that was so massive and it just wiped out all electronics on Earth, like that would be worst case scenario for Bitcoin. But obviously that'd be worst case scenario for humanity in general. So like I don't think we'd really care that much. But even yeah. then, not I'm only sure, would Bitcoin not work, but regular right. dollars wouldn't work either at that point. Kind of, <laughs> kind of doesn't really matter. It's a moot point. But even then, as long as there's a copy of of Bitcoin, because it's in the entire history of it stored somewhere, then it's fine. As long as you bring the network back up, it lives again. Like you can't you can't undo the history of Bitcoin unless you destroy every copy of the blockchain that exists, which is incredibly difficult to do. So like, it, it's pretty impressive. And I like, I've 
try to figure out what the other worst case. So no matter what, like, you know that it exists and then it becomes this thing that's kind of like resistant to all governments and resistant to like anything that can try to destroy it. And as something that becomes a transactable item that everybody, you know, it's got the brand recognition, it's got the, it's uh, still functions as money. It'll always have some value to it as a result of that. So like, that's why the, the case of zero becomes almost impossible. Like you'd have to combine that, you know, like government bans plus like network, massive network disruption, you know, solar flare or like governments like taking out the internet or something like that. Plus you'd have to have somebody use a quantum computer to uh, unlock the keys, you know, determine the the private keys to the, uh, the Satoshi Nakamoto wallets that have maybe a million Bitcoin and then dump them on the market. You would have to have all these things happen and really create a lot of uncertainty around the the quality of holding Bitcoin as a store of value or as a currency. But even then, I think it would still survive. Like, so like yeah, those yeah, are. It, it's it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, what if every country did in fact ban Bitcoin? Right. What I would do if I was a small country is I would allow it. Right. Because then I would get some value out of it, and the value wouldn't go to zero, and everybody would come to me. And then once I've done it and I'm creating a little value out of it, the next small country would do it as well, right? Until we gained enough power to where it was just back where it was. So game theory wise, no one would really want to uh, destroy Bitcoin because any one nation's benefit from okaying it exceeds its benefit from blocking it, right? So right out, out the gate from a game theory perspective, like you can, you can definitely see that it would want to persist. But aside from that, how would you actually destroy it if you wanted to? And what would be needed for that? So you can think about if I was America and I decided that I want to destroy Bitcoin, how would I do it? I would go to the big pool validators, right? The ones that have all the computing power that are actually validating the blockchain. And I would shut enough of them down in a way that for just 10 seconds, I could have more than 51% of the writing power. And then I would just rewrite the entire ledger. So I have everything and nobody else has anything, and then it would disappear, right? And that would be the way a government would do it if they wanted to do it. But what would the benefit of that be and how many resources would you put into it? You know, like the, the hashing now, power of the crypto chain is the only centralized. But the only be- problem though, sorry to interrupt, no, is that having 51% of the, of the hash rate of a proof of work uh, blockchain like Bitcoin only allows you to negate what is happening for the current blocks. You don't have sufficient power to be able to go back and rewrite blocks. It's It becomes increasingly infeasible to go back even more than one block. And like, so there's a number of items that you kind of talked about. So like, I agree, like worst case scenario, you had governments pour in a lot of resources they might not be able to directly take control of miners that are out there right now because miners are in their own interests only operate to be able to uphold, you know, like they only profit because Bitcoin is accepted. So they wouldn't willingly do anything that would cause Bitcoin to collapse. So it would have to be, you know, the a government 
either matching the hashing power by their own expense of creating the hardware to do it, or yeah, by like just seizing enough hardware. I, they couldn't really, it'd be really difficult to take control of pools. Uh, also pools are, are decentralized still in themselves. They look centralized, but the anybody can join and leave a pool at any time. And although a pool might be located uh, like headquartered in a specific country, like most of the major pools exist in out of China, but the hardware that is linked to a pool, because the pool just, it just divides up rewards. So that way everybody gets a piece of the pie because everybody is technically competing against one another to try to mine blocks. So pools just uh, distribute rewards that are mined by everybody part of that pool. But the physical uh, physical hardware that's part of that pool might be all over the all over the world because really hardware just goes to wherever electricity and conditions are the most profitable for them to mine uh, bitcoins. It'd be really difficult for any country to seize that equipment because it really is spread all over the place. Like that would be a massive endeavor in itself. Uh, but like we'll consider the fact that they could do that, or they could just spend the money to generate the hardware to be able to compete, to be able to create the momentary 51% attack. And then you've you've blown your cover, you did what you wanted to, and it achieved really little because they can just fork the blockchain back to the prior block, the one prior to the attack and say, wow, this government just tried to take over this. Everybody like, you know, recognize that we're going to uh, go to this prior block and continue on. Now, it would probably have a significant impact on the price because people would be like, holy shit, it actually got attacked when it had never happened in its history. Uh, but I still think that like it'll continue to function on from that. And it, it's something that it can't really impact its functionality other than its pristine history now shows that it had suffered an attack. But that whatever entity tries to do it, they show their hand at the same time. And then any like if they were friendly to Bitcoin, then it becomes something synonymous to banning it. Now, anybody that was part of cryptocurrency in that country is like, well, we saw what happened when we were here. So we're going to go somewhere else to set up our operations. And they lose out on that industry in entirely. So like it becomes something it, it is very game theory based in all of these, because even if there was some incentive to attack a network by any nation around the world, it's going to go poorly for them because they're going to lose any any interest uh, in their country to set up business in that industry. They're just going to lose all of it. And they might fall behind technologically, especially when most countries around the world are moving towards having digital uh, central bank currencies of their own. Uh, and like, that's another story, you know, that people think that it might rival or threaten the dominance of, of decentralized currencies, but like, it's just creating fiat. It's, it's just fiat currency that exists in a digital form that makes, mm -hmm. makes it easier to transact in the digital world that we're moving towards anyways, but it doesn't change the, you know, the fact that we have 
broken monetary systems already worldwide and digital uh, central bank digital currencies don't change that. They just continue to make it easier to have broken monetary systems. So it doesn't actually impact or negatively impact uh, you know, Bitcoin or other decentralized currencies dominance and their utility. The fact that they're separate from those systems are what give them great strength in the first place. So like no matter what, like it just seems like all of the negatives continue to get curtailed. And then the upside is pure adoption. You know, we're only at slightly over 1% or almost 2% of adoption of you know, the world's population's adoption into Bitcoin. And really you just need to get a couple percent and then the the utility expands enough the capital inflows just continue to really fly in because price appreciation continues to accelerate so fast because again supply is so low programmed low and gr going to get less every four years with the halving and as long as there's high demand and increasing demand because of the scaling up of the network effect, the adoption, the S-curve of any, just like any technology that gets adopted, that that just just smashes price, uh, price discovery, just causes it to vault up into insane levels that we all realistically are probably underestimating what it looks like as that adoption happens violently to the upside sometimes. But there are like other factors, plenty of other factors that'll kind of cause it to go up, come back. The The volatility is still be huge, but we'll have to see how it works out. I mean, like everybody's excited for 2021, but then it's kind of what happens after 2021 that'll be more interesting. Is it going to have that large four-year cyclical bear market that's really deep? Or is it going to be muted because of all of the increased scaling and adoption or is 2025 going to be like the mega adoption cycle where uh, where you see even more players in the world and really get into cryptocurrency that concludes the first segment of our conversation if you enjoyed the content please make sure that you subscribe to the channel uh, find the youtube video and like it subscribe to the youtube channel and if you do have any questions, make sure that you post those in the comment section. And you can also find me at Colin Nordman on Twitter. I hope that you've enjoyed everything so far. And please stay tuned for the next segment. Thank you.